All right, I want you to close your eyes for a moment and picture ancient Rome. All right, okay, if you're driving or jogging or something like that, don't close your eyes. But if you're somewhere where you can do this, I really want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to, I want you to picture ancient Rome. Get it, get it in your head. Maybe have in mind a scene from the movie Gladiator or, or Spartacus or the Lost Legion. Picture Roman soldiers with their armor, their red capes, and centurions with the huge plumed helmets. And then listen to this description from the famous Greek author Plutarch as he describes the entry of Roman general Lucius Aemilius Paulus Macedonicus into Rome around 167 BC. His triumphant procession through the city lasted no less than three days. The first day was dedicated to carrying around Rome all the artwork that Aemilius and his army had looted from Macedonia. The second day, they displayed all the weapons of the Macedonians. When the day finally came for Aemilius himself to make his glorious entrance, he was preceded by 250 oxen whose horns were covered in gold. Afterward came the vessels carrying the gold coins that had been taken, weighing roughly 17,000 pounds. Following all the plunder, Aemilius had the king of Macedonia and his extended family parade through the city, having to endure the shame of their complete defeat by Rome. With such a demonstration of his power and might, Aemilius himself entered Rome, mounted on a chariot with glorious adornments. He wore a purple robe, interwoven with gold, and he carried his laurels in his right hand. Accompanying him, he had a whole choir who would sing hymns, praising the military victories of the great Aemilius. <laughs> 250 oxen whose horns were covered with gold. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Can you imagine such a scene? Nearly 2,000 years later, the world's princes, kings, princesses, and queens still know how to make an entrance. When the President of the United States arrives in your city for a visit, he brings along several planes, several helicopters, and a motorcade of 40 to 50 vehicles, not including the local and state police escorts. This motorcade includes several armored limousines, the USSS Electronic Countermeasures Suburban, whatever that thing does, vehicles carrying surface-to-air missiles, I'm not making this up, and yes, the motorcade's own ambulance, and yes, it's, it's painted black to match the presidential limousines. And it's not just POTUS. In 2012, Queen Elizabeth, a constitutional monarch, celebrated her diamond jubilee. Just one aspect of this month-long celebration featured the royal barge floating down the River Thames with an entourage of over 1,000 boats from all over the Commonwealth. It was the largest flotilla on the Thames River in over 350 years. Okay, do your queen wave. I know you want to. See, 
we do have an idea of how the world treats the arrival of a king or a queen, which makes the arrival of the king of kings and lord of lords a bit strange. Hear what Luke has to say about the arrival of the king. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. No golden-horned oxen here. No Air Force One. No flotilla of a thousand boats. In fact, not even a room, but a cave. Born outside with animals to a set of poor, uneducated Judean peasants. Nobodies, as far as anybody could tell. That was the arrival of the King of Kings. At Christmas, we rightly focus on the story of Jesus' birth. We talk about Caesar and Herod, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, the innkeeper, and yes, the magi. We retell the story. But the gospel writers want us to know something very important about that baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the long-awaited king, the Messiah. For years, I skipped over the long genealogy recorded in Matthew chapter 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. And his brothers, Judah, was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. <gasps> and on and on it goes. I mean, who cares about a list of names? Apparently, the Jews did. For the Jews in the first century, for couples like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, they felt God's absence. For them, God had been silent, absent, for nearly 400 years. For them, they were still living in exile, still waiting for God's return, still waiting for deliverance. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 36 puts it this way. So now today we are slaves. We are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. Slaves to the Assyrians, slaves to the Babylonians, slaves to the Persians, slaves to the Greeks, and now slaves to the Romans. They were waiting for the king to come. Daniel has a vision, and he records it in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 20 to 24. Daniel says, I went on praying 
and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I've come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I'm here to tell you what it was. For you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning of your vision. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. A period of 70 sets of seven. So, so what is this stuff in Daniel about? Well, for the Jews, life, time, history had a rhythm to it. Every seven days, a Sabbath. Every seven years, a sabbatical year. And every 70 times seven, or at least that's how it's supposed to be, a year of jubilee, a year in which the slaves were freed, a year in which land was, that had been sold off by the family was returned to the original owner, a year in which things got put back the way they should be. Matthew is saying, this is the year of jubilee, and it's here in the form of a person, Jesus. See, Matthew uses generations, not years. It's 14 generations to David, 14 generations to the exile, 14 generations to Jesus. Three times 14 is 42, or six periods of seven. All the generations leading up to Jesus were six sevens. And now with Jesus, the seventh seven is now here. And Jesus himself would seem to agree. He says this in Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scriptures you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Matthew puts it this way at the beginning of his gospel. She will have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And then verse 23, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. According to Tom Wright, when you look at Jesus, 
you see the personal presence of Israel's God coming to be with his people and rescue them from the plight their sins have brought upon them. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus calms the wind and the waves. When they climbed back in the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Now, as we've seen in this series, Jesus is constantly teaching about the kingdom. It's a treasure hidden in the field. It's like a small seed. And he's constantly telling stories about kings and subjects, masters and servants. Is all of that a coincidence? I don't think so. That baby born in Bethlehem isn't just an inspired teacher. That baby born in Bethlehem isn't just a miracle worker. That baby born in Bethlehem isn't just a revolutionary. That baby born in Bethlehem is king. The king of the Jews, yeah, but the one true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So in light of how the king arrives on the scene in a cave, in a manger in Bethlehem, let me ask you a question. How has God come to you in unexpected ways? How has God come to you in unexpected ways? Elizabeth didn't expect it. Mary didn't expect it. The shepherds weren't expecting that announcement in the fields at night. How has God come to you in unexpected ways? And then, what would you give the king this Christmas? Yeah, in the midst of a pandemic. What would you give the king? I'm mindful of the song, In the Bleak, bleak Midwinter. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can I give him? Give my heart. Gang, this Christmas, I want you to take the time and I want you to read either the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. Pick one of those two Gospels and read a chapter a day in the month of December. Matthew or Luke. And as you're reading a chapter a day, Ask yourself some questions. What is this book, what is this gospel telling me about Jesus? What kind of king is he? And what does his kingdom look like? Born in a cave with little fanfare, except maybe the angelic announcement made to shepherds who most folks seem to have dismissed as drunk or crazy, that baby becomes a man who has an itinerant 
preaching ministry for three years. He heals, he does, raises the dead, but he preaches and teaches about the kingdom of God. It culminates with him dying a criminal's death on a cross. Again, completely unexpected. While on that cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? But I want you to hear the end of that very psalm. Because Jesus would have had this in mind, yes, as he was hanging there on the cross. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for royal power for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations.